good morning, Woven Covenant Church. It's good to see all of you here this 4th of July weekend. So, um, as we sang, it felt like there was a huge throng among us. The voices were full and loud, and I think the angels were together with us this 4th of July weekend singing and filling all the seats. So, um, I'm thankful for that. It was a good time of worship. Thank you, Pastor Bobby. We've been in a series called Servant Songs, and studying the book of Isaiah um, is a special task because this is the book, this is the Bible that the New Testament uh, Christians were reading themselves. Their Bible at the time was not the Bible as we know it today with the Gospels and the Epistles. Their Bible was the Old Testament, and for them, their Gospel was Isaiah. So for us to study Isaiah is kind of like reading the prequel or watching the prequel of a story that we're very familiar with, but in particular, Isaiah and the servant songs, four passages in Isaiah would be very often quoted and would very often become part of the New Testament story. In fact, Jesus himself, it is believed, read those words and understood himself in light of the suffering servant. He identified himself, and he read these passages and said, that's me. So we're going to talk about the suffering servant today. Actually, the title of today's sermon is The Servant of Restoration. The Servant of Restoration, and I am going to talk about four qualities that you'll find in your notes, the four qualities of this servant of restoration. By the way, I should clarify that today's passage is the second servant song. Scholars recognize four servant songs, four songs that Jesus would understand himself in light of. This is the second servant song. So we begin with that first heading, the call of the servant of restoration. The call of the servant of restoration. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother, he marked my name. He named me. Literally translated, from the womb, he marked me. From the womb, he had his eye on me. My name was marked. Now, this is important because every Christmas time, we talk about the birth account of Jesus. Not just the birth account, but we talk about the prenatal life of Jesus, the prenatal, the life of Jesus inside the womb, and this whole story about the baby jumping in stomachs and, and, and moving around, and all that's recorded in the Gospels. And you wonder why we talk about that every Christmas time. This is the reason. This is the reason. In the Old Testament, the prenatal calling of God upon somebody was an important emphasis. And here we see it in this servant song, I'm marked from the womb. And this strong sense of identity from conception, Jesus internalized. He read these words and said, that's me. From the womb, I was marked. From the womb, my name was reserved for special purposes. He understood himself in light of this passage. 
Now, I want to follow this thought here for a second. If you understand yourself in the light of a passage of Scripture, either it's really helping you or you're taking it a little bit too seriously. What we have in the Bible today is called a closed canon. The prophecy is closed. We don't add more books to the Bible. And if somebody says, the Bible is talking about me there. From the womb, it was speaking about me. I am the dreaded horseman, or I am the next prophet. Then you think that they're kind of wacko. So for Jesus to claim, uh, to lay claim to Isaiah verse, chapter 49, verse 1, was he a little wacko is the question. For somebody to say, they're talking about me, was this was this the, the, the behavior of a lunatic? And so I want to list out three options. These are the three fill-in-the-blanks. The first option was Jesus was a lunatic. For somebody to say, the Bible, it speaks about me, the prophetic, there, there's a strong narcissism behind that, an egotism. Was Jesus an egomaniacal lunatic? Well, I just want to answer that with this. If he was a lunatic, he was not the only one at the time. John the Baptist also would lay claim to some of the verses in Isaiah 40. For example, when it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, that was me. So John's doing it as well. In fact, in early Christian times, many people laid claim to Isaiah. You see, at that time, it was not uncommon for people to understand the book of Isaiah to be fulfilled in their time. So actually, no, I do not believe Jesus was a lunatic. I do not believe that he was just one of those wackos that says, this Bible verse is talking about me. I am the prophesied one. It was not uncommon at that time. In fact, people were looking for the servant. And for Jesus to say, I am the one, I am the one from the womb that was called I don't think it's the work of a lunatic. The second option is he was straight up a liar. And if you're familiar with this line of thought, Lord, liar, or lunatic, this is uh, from C.S. Lewis and also Josh McDowell, if you've ever heard of this. But it's an apologetic argument. We're all Christians here, so I can teach you that. The second option is, was he a liar? Was he a liar? And I think that kind of clumps with the first. If he was lying about this whole thing, well, he was probably crazy too. Now, for somebody to be a big liar, he, he had an awfully remarkable, he had a remarkable presence of mind. He had a remarkable presence of mind and a clarity of thought for somebody that was a liar. I, for one, don't think anybody would die for a lie. I don't think the disciples would have died for a lie. So, no, I am not convinced that he was a liar. The third option is he was Lord. And when we read these words... When we read the gospel and we read the words of Jesus, I think when we fully come to grasp with what he's saying, you walk away saying, dude, this dude's tripping. This guy's just crazy. Either he's dead serious or this whole thing's a big joke because we don't really have much middle ground in the sayings of Jesus except to either on the one hand reject him entirely and say, I can't, I, this, this stuff is just too much for me. Or on the other hand, say, he must be the Lord and who he says he is. There's no middle ground. In our postmodern age, it's very common and popular to say Jesus was a great moral teacher. And, and uh, I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, the moral teacher? No, he's not. 
He doesn't give us the option of moral teacher. Either we accept him on the one hand as lunatic or liar or as somebody that's just straight up crazy or he is who he said he is. But we cannot call him a great moral teacher and none of that patronizing nonsense is going to help us at all. He's not even left that option open to us. Either he is Lord or he is nothing. And that's not dogmatism there. To wrestle with the claims of Jesus should change our lives. I suspect whenever somebody says Jesus was a great moral teacher, I suspect that they haven't read his sayings at all. This was somebody that had a very strong sense of identity and call. So the call of the servant, the call of the servant from the womb. The second quality of the servant of restoration is the bite. The bite of the servant. Look at Isaiah chapter 49 verse 2. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he's also made me a select arrow and hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. I was up several thousand miles in the air in a plane from Houston to Arizona to Phoenix. And there's nothing like being kind of locked into a, you know, a small can in the middle of the air that really galvanizes your thoughts. And I was looking at this passage, and I was so struck by these words. I was so struck by that phrase uh, in verse 2. He's hidden me in the shadow of his hand, or more specifically, in the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. I was struck by those words because whenever it speaks about being in the shadow of God, whether it's his wings or under the shadow, there's a protective sense about it throughout the Old Testament. To be in the shadow of God's wings or his arms, it's a protective thing. But these are not protective words. It's talking about an, a kind of attack almost. There's a sense where a sharp arrow, um, words that bite, there's a sense here of a conceal and carry no political statement intended. When he talks about he's hidden me in the, shadow of his, uh, in the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. The servant is recognizing himself as a weapon. A weapon that might be hidden under a tunic and at just the right shadow that's cast from your hand, you can greet somebody and they won't see underneath the, underneath the shadow of your hand that there's a weapon there. And so there's a sense where the servant recognizes himself as I am that secluded, that weapon lying in wait that God uses not to kill, but to pierce where no sword can. When I was growing up, I heard many different songs about Jesus and sang a lot of different church tunes and songs about Jesus as my best friend forever or about how I would put Jesus in a little box and take him out and kiss him. And I understand that children need these aids to help them understand. The problem is he is not exactly safe. To listen to the words of the servant that's called and to really read those words, he's not exactly tame. This is not a pet on a leash. 
This is somebody whose words disturb. Jesus constantly provoked. That's why to say he was a great moral teacher. No, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes there's nothing moral about what he says. It's more radical than anything else. Well, it is moral. Don't get me wrong. It was a higher degree of morality is what it was. And so this servant comes up, uh, comes in a word that, that, that is almost secluded and out of nowhere strikes out, and we didn't expect that. I have an aunt um, back in New York that once said, I like the church. I just don't like all this Jesus stuff about discipleship and all commitment and radical and all that stuff. It's too heavy. And that's the thing. Um, the Christian message, sometimes I feel like we brace ourselves. We, we're afraid of what it's going to tell us. And what I'd like to say, friends, is let's stay vulnerable. That's the application, to drop our guard and to be vulnerable. Sometimes God challenges us. Sometimes the servant speaks in a way that pierces. There's a bite to his words. When somebody provokes me or challenges me in a good, in a good way and spurs me on towards better living or to a higher quality of life, instead of guarding myself, I find that I have to allow myself to be vulnerable. I'm reading this book by Brene Brown, if that rings a bell, yeah? And uh, I'm going to talk more about it next week. And this idea of vulnerability is a big thing right now, of how vulnerability and laying ourselves out and not being afraid of our shame is an incredible, powerful step. I think it's an important step in discipleship as well. I know being a pastor that vulnerability is not something that people often want to show me. There's fear. There's shame. And no less to God Almighty. We don't want God to know. We don't want to be provoked by the bite. And yet vulnerability and saying, I'm open, I'm open, thy will be done, is a good step forward. It's a good step towards wholeness. So stay vulnerable, friends. Stay vulnerable. We'll talk more about vulnerability next Sunday. So we started out with the call of the servant, the prenatal call. We talked, secondly, about the bite of the servant, the prophetic bite. Third, we'll talk about the angst of the servant. The angst of the servant in verse 4. This is the servant speaking. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You could say I've wasted my strength. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. These are very anxious words. Now, for anybody that takes their life, their career, their accomplishments, seriously, these words should ring a bell. These are words of failure. I don't know a single successful person that said, I was born and I succeeded. Instantly. Everyone who was successful somewhere along the line needed to suffer 
failure. And for most people, failure repeatedly and dejection. One of my most admired mentors, I remember seeing him at the most dejected time. And I remember watching him walk home alone in the dark once and thinking, man, there's a, there's a pitiful guy. Today, very successful. But man, was there a lot of suffering and failure along the way. So friends, don't be afraid of failure. One of the things about these church conferences that I go to is I get sick and tired of just hearing about success and success and success. I'd like to go to a conference for once where everybody just talks about their failures. Because once we talk about success and success, there's no vulnerability and a veneer goes up of invincibility. I'd like to go to a place where people lead with their weakness. I'd like this to be a place where we lead with our weakness. And the result, you know what it is? It's intimacy. It's connection. It's engagement. It's in vulnerability where we break through. So listen to these words. He's being very vulnerable. He says, I have said, I have toiled, I have spent. Grammatically, you have, you have some completed actions in the past here. I did this. In the past, in retrospect, in retrospect, the servant is looking back and saying, I gave it my best shot. I worked, I have spent, and the conclusion was nothing and vanity. Nothing and vanity. That word nothing there is the same word used in Hebrew in Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning, the earth was formless and void. There was nothing. This person's life failure, in the end, was nothing. It was worse than even before creation. There was nothing. And on top of that, when he says, for all of this I have spent, nothing and vanity, I have spent my life. That word spent can also be translated concluded or completed. So at the completion of this person's life, at the completion of the servant's life, nothing utter failure. Does that not sound like Jesus? Here's Jesus, the greatest church planter of all time. Starts off with three people. Three. That's 10% of what we started with. Starts off with three guys and from there builds a core team of 12. And the core team of 12 grows to, I, I believe it's 30 and then others. And from 30, it becomes 72. He sends the 72 out on mission, and his church just keeps growing and growing. The next thing you know, he's in the wilderness doing church out in the desert, and there's 5,000 people there. Man, does this guy know how to plant a church. He's got excitement. He's got free food, all this stuff. It's a show. And then at the end, how many does Jesus end up with? At the completion of his life's work, he ends up with one. Now, if you count the woman, it's more than that. But of the original core team, a church that's grown to 5,000, man, you're doing something really wrong if your church has shrunk all the way down to just one, and that's John, the apostle. John was the only one left by his side at the end. Everybody left Jesus' church. Everybody. There was only John and his mother and the woman. There was nobody. This is the greatest church planting failure of all time. 
And when I think about this, it's encouraging. But the irony is, that is exactly what had to happen. It is exactly what had to happen in order for the deeper will of God to be done. Jesus knew that this failure had to happen. He knew that the cross and the failure of the cross had to happen. You know why? Because of these words. He read these words in the second servant song of Isaiah, and he realized, ah, failure is imminent. I must go to the cross. And it's in going to the cross that only will there be real life and breakthrough. Friends, only through your failure will there be breakthrough. Not only is this a principle for the servant, I believe this is a universal principle. Failure is imminent, but, but how does this verse end? Yet surely the justice do me is with my God. My reward is coming. Never lose confidence in that, friends. Never lose hope in that. Never, ever be crushed and overwhelmed by your failures. If you're living righteously and making good choices and wise choices with your lives, you can always claim that. You can always say, in the end, despite everything going wrong in my life, the justice is coming and the good and the reward is coming with my God. So friends, here's the fill in the blank and the reflection. Where is my value? Where is my value? If I place my value on my failures or on my job or on my career or on my advancement or on the type of car I drive today or how many zeros I have in my salary or what, uh, how fast I've climbed the corporate ladder, if I place my value in that, there is nobody that will ever be satisfied. We have to constantly check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. <laughs> Because our value, we, we, it winds up in the wrong place constantly. I'm sure for ladies, it's the same thing. I don't mean to make it. The, you know, ladies, we, 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 ladies you, you might, you might you know, measure yourselves by different standards. Where is your value? And a guy that I know that recently quit his job, and he did that for a good reason. And he said, I mean, I suck, man. Where's my value? And yet God came through in his case. Where is your value? Where is your value? You know, just to share personally, when I was um, in Phoenix and that time that I got to spend with other church planters in particular, and we led with our weakness. That's why this was one of the best trips for me. I've been going to Covenant events now for eight plus years. Eight plus years and multiple times a year. This was one of the best because in an intimate setting, guys and ladies in ministry, men and women in ministry, we just laid it out. And in an intimate setting, we shared. And one of my friends, um, of course, this will stay anonymous, one of my friends in ministry um, with a church almost identical to ours, um, he was beginning to symptomize. And he got diagnosed with depression and began a course of therapy. 
and the denomination and his church was helping. And he's always smiling, but, and he's like, when am I going to get over this depression thing? But apparently they're saying I'm depressed, and he's wrestling with that. Uh, I don't think I'm depressed, but, and I think I'm okay. Um, another one of my friends, a church planter who started a couple of years before we did, and the church is growing, and they're doing well. But this guy is just tired. He's young. He's new to the game. And uh, I'm going to find out tomorrow whether he's decided to quit or to just stay on at the church. All work can be crushing. And if we identify and wrap up our value in the wrong things, whether it's work or success or whatnot, it's a hamster wheel that will never, ever end. Never. Never end. Man, I'm just one promotion away from being happy. Man, I'm just one more toy away from being happy. Man, I'm just one more public recognition away from being happy. No, I will never be happy. I know myself. It's a hamster wheel, and it's devastating. One of those church planners, he said it perfectly. He said, I always feel like I'm one miracle away from success. I know what that feels like. And man, that's an unhappy place to be. Why? Because our value is not determined by our accomplishments or by what we do. Our value, in the end, rests with the Lord. Our reward is with our God. Yet surely, my reward is with my God. Remember these words of the servant. Failure is imminent. It's imminent, but it is the stepping stone to a greater growth that you could never have imagined, nor orchestrated, nor scripted. I never thought that we would plant a church and on the first day experience what was like a death and a resurrection. I couldn't have scripted that. Remember the miracle of God, friends. His will is being done His way. And in your lives, in your lives, you can rest in that. So the servant of restoration. Where's the restoration part? It's coming now. It's the fourth one. We started with the call of the servant, the bite of the servant, the angst, and now fourth is the task of the servant, the task of their servant, which is restoring restoration, bringing back. Listen to these words in 5 and 6. Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb. There again is this prenatal thing. It's this almost strong egotism. I was the one called from the womb. Who formed me from the womb to be a servant in order to bring Jacob back to, back to him, back to God, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. In verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. It's too small a thing. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Friends, let me give you a little bit of historical exegesis on Isaiah. The nation of Israel started off as a small tribe, a big family. A big family and a tribe that grew, 
grew enough to become a little uh, federated nation. They were not really all that. I mean, wonderful things happened, miraculous deeds, exodus out of Egypt. They were probably at least a million strong. But still, by the world's standards, not that great. Over time, of course, with the reign of King David and Solomon, and after that, the nation would experience its height, its glory days, and they would barter and trade with Egypt and Cush and Syria and the surrounding. But gradually, the nation would decline as greater powers began to come on the scene. And as greater kingdoms, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Assyria, King Cyrus, they, be- they found that they, they had to deal with even bigger, more powerful people than ever before. And throughout Isaiah, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Cyrus, the king of Persia and Assyria. And at this point, Israel, small tribal stuff, come on. We're a lot bigger than that now. Right now, we're talking about envoys and dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, with the, emperor, with the emperor, with the kings and the rulers of the world. It's too small a thing. So what's happened at this point in Isaiah is the Israelites have become much more cosmopolitan in view, much more cosmopolitan. They see a much bigger world. And the result is they're beginning to recognize It's too little for us to just focus on Israel. This religion needs to start reaching out to the nations. This religion needs to start going cross-cultural. And we see the beginning of the non-Jewish Gentile mission. It's too small a thing here to just raise up and restore the tribes of Jacob. It's too small a thing. There's more. And we have to be able to mainstream and broadstream our message to all the nations. And it's why we planted this church in the beginning. And I remember, um, if I can just share uh, as we wrap up, two or three weeks ago, after lunch, a couple of us, we went out to a new uh, bubble tea tea shop on Mason Road. And as I walked in, it was like a blast from the past for me. Now... Typically, bubble tea is an Asian thing. And as I walked in, I saw two rows of young adults, young people, Asian, and I knew right away that they were all Korean. And I knew because I could just tell. I knew, they were, I knew that they came from church because that's what I did when I was younger. And after church, Korean folk would gather together and do this thing, and then they'd go eat, and then after that, they'd do the next thing and just kind of hang out and hang out until the cows came home. And the thing is, knowing that, at the same time, I know that that's not all that there is. Having come from that background, it got to a point where I myself began to wonder, is this all that church life is? Going to church on Sunday and going out to eat afterwards and just hanging out and doing the same thing. And I began to wonder, doesn't the gospel have a much more important cross-cultural emphasis. Now, I've preached many, many multi-ethnic messages, many, many vision messages about how it's important to reach cross-culturally. I'm not going to do that today. There's another side to this, and I see it in myself. 
Because if I'm honest, at that moment, when I walked in, I felt like I was better than everybody. Because I'm part of a multi-ethnic church now. And we're no longer just doing the Korean thing. And yet I'm in a bubble tea shop. And I recognize within myself a certain streak of elitism where I'm ready to go cross-cultural, which is great, man. And I'm talking with church planters and practitioners across different ethnicities. And it's so easy to forget my own people. This is the restoration part. Jesus did not start straightaways with a Gentile mission. He read these words. He knew that the light would be to the Gentiles and to the non-Jews. But he started his mission deliberately with what? People that were like him. And from that place of familiarity and recognition, then the church grew. Then from that stickiness, people came in. Then they were able to reach across borders and cultures. Friends, and I speak to myself now, don't fall into the trap of elitism and say that I am better than my roots. Don't say that I am better than where I came from, the backwards podunk town or village or people. Because those are your people. And in the end, we can't forget our own people. Because if we do, we've cut off our own roots. Restoration Restoration means beginning with what we know and beginning with our familiar peoples and cultures. And from there we build bridges because you cannot start with nothing. The closing reflection is how can I restore my own people? How can I restore my own people? Who is it that is in your backyard, so to speak? How about your brothers and sisters or friends, or family members, are they fair game to bring back to church? Whatever culture you are, or your roots or background may be, don't forget restoration. Don't fall into the trap of elitism, thinking that you are better than where you came from. I will raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel, but I will also make you a light of the nations. So with that word, I close. Pause for a moment to close your eyes as well. And to reflect on these words of the servant, the one who is called, the one who is uncomfortable sometimes, that speaks piercingly to our souls the one whose ministry failed utterly only to succeed wildly beyond our wildest dreams and how that ministry today involves restoring but also reaching across who is it that you can restore today and I see it as I meet your friends and as I meet your family members. I see it. I see you guys. I see you guys sharing the gospel. I see you guys reaching out. Keep doing it. Don't give up. 
those people, I believe, will eventually walk through the doors of this church. And whatever culture they are, we start with those that are closest. And then we can do the harder work of reaching to those that are furthest. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the mission of this church. We thank you that you're showing us that it's your will in your way. And we know that, Lord, you will surprise us. So we surrender. Help us, Lord, to let go and to let you pilot our lives our careers, our hopes and dreams. And so at this time, I pray for your anointing to fall, that we might love and restore those nearest to us so that we might also reach those afar. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.